walking through a series in Ecclesiastes called A Life Well Lived, about the life of Solomon, calls himself the preacher. We know Solomon is the king of Israel, son of David who slew Goliath. Solomon was his, his son through Bathsheba. And what Solomon has been telling us is that there's a crisis of understanding that we have in this life as we live it out in this earth. And so he's trying to get us to see life through God's perspective of how we should live it here on this earth. And it's the difference between a biblical and a secular worldview. You all have a worldview, by the way. You all have some lens by which when you see things on the evening news or at school or wherever, you filter it and you go, okay, that's how that makes sense to me. What Solomon just screams at us is that you need to get a biblical worldview. And where do we get a biblical worldview from? Right here. Right here. So that's what we're going to do this morning is continue our look into this biblical worldview. I know it's a little warm. I think we're doing better than maybe we did last week. So hopefully I won't keep you much past one. I don't think it'll get much hotter after that. All right? Yeah. So let's pray together and we'll begin our time in the Word. Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus, you are welcome here this morning. We pray that your presence will fill this place, will fill this atmosphere. As we long to look into your word, you can teach us and change us and make us more into the likeness of Jesus. We know, Father, that you're always building our faith and you're always building our character. I pray that that happens today. That's what we have come for, is to hear your word and be a changed people because we know that nothing changes the human heart except the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we've actually made it halfway through the series. We're on the other side. Can you believe it? Already. So let's do a little bit of review because I know some of you are, are, are maybe new or some of you are coming into this after having missed a couple of weeks. Let's review just a little bit, right? We all like reviews. You teachers in the audience, you know what a, what a good review does. In the first couple of chapters, Remember, Solomon gave us a critique of life under the sun. He used that term a lot in Ecclesiastes. Life in this world, in this earth, as you live it out. What does life look like? And he said unequivocally that as you try and experience life through searching for hedonism, through materialism, through uh, uh, knowledge and wisdom, whatever you do to try and get meaning out of this life is going to come up empty and vain. Vanity is the word he uses over 30 times, I believe. Solomon declares that apart from God, in the first couple of chapters, he said there could be no profit, no ultimate purpose in life under the sun. And we as Christians would, would agree with that. But then he goes on to say, life gets complicated as we walk with God, because then we see things happen in our life and in the world, and we go, God, why'd you do that? And he says, he kind of sets up the rest of the book in chapters 3 and 4, he says, just believe in the sovereignty of God, take comfort in that, get to know who your God is. He says, however, don't make deals with God because that is not the way God works with us. You do this, God, and I'll do that. He says that in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6 and 7, which is where we've been the last few weeks, Solomon challenges us to challenge our perspectives of life, to change our worldview, as it were. Because what he realizes is that far more than the good times, we go through bad times in this life. Far more do we have to deal with the problems of life than we get to rejoice in the goodness of life. He think, I think he makes it very clear, though, that 
we can have a choice. We can be miserable in this life, or we can be joyful and happy and enjoy this life. I think he tells us to enjoy it. But understand some things as you, as you do that. So the perspectives from God that he's giving us, first one was wealth. doesn't satisfy. Remember that a couple weeks ago? Wealth and prosperity is not always good for us. Hard lesson for those of us who live in modern Christian America. And then last week, Fitz did a great job of explaining that sometimes adversity and hard times are not always bad for us. Now, nobody likes to go through those hard times. But God says, you know what, sometimes it's exactly what you need to grow up and be shaped. Today, we're going to look at the last perspective that, that Solomon gives us in chapter 7, which is, you know what, we need to have a different perspective about ourselves. This one's going to hurt, folks. Can I have permission to challenge you in what you believe right now? All right. Because I'm going to challenge what you believe this morning. Solomon says we aren't smart enough to criticize what God does. We're not smart enough. We don't understand what he's doing. So he's going to tell us to trust God when things don't add up. Trust God when things don't add up. That's our message and that's our topic for this morning. If you have your Bibles... Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Greg, tell me what page the uh, Pew Bible it's on. 480 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bibles. If you don't have one, it should be in the seat in front of you. Ask the person behind you. Maybe they'll give you one. I think it's important that we, we look at our Bibles as we go through the message. Because you know, I had a professor one time in school. and He used to say, every once in a while, sit in the front row. And as the pastor reads his passage, look at him and go... You know, keep them on target. Keep them on track. So we're going to look at chapter 7, and let's start in verse 15. Solomon says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. He says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Isn't that true? Don't we always ask that question? Why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Sometimes wicked people prosper. And sometimes righteous people suffer. Started way back in the story. Remember the story of God? It goes all the way back to Genesis, chapter 4. You know, if you, if you knew the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the rest of the Bible would really make sense to you, by the way. How about this cat named Abel? Remember him? Cain and Abel, the brothers? Y'all remember that from the story, right? Adam and Eve have a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. What happens to Abel? What happened to him? He got killed at a ripe young age, by the way. Righteous Abel, righteous man. His offerings were righteous before God. Who killed him? Isn't that amazing? His own brother killed him. And Cain, who was wicked and unrighteous, lived so long he got to build cities and, and named after his own sons. How is that fair? Consider the suffering of Job, right? I use that, uh, that example a lot. Maybe you have to do a series on Job. He didn't suffer because he was a wicked man. Bible says very clearly in the beginning, Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. However, his friends kept coming and saying, what are you doing wrong? Because, you know, God doesn't do this to people who, who live righteous lives. 
fact, they were wrong. So my challenge for you this morning as we start off here, if you were God, if you were God and could make decisions, how would you run the universe? You know, I, I've been reading a lot about the, the story of Corey Ten Boom and her book, The Hiding Place. Anybody ever read that? It's an awesome book. It's a story of two sisters who were in the Dutch uh, uh, resistance, if you will, in World War II in the Netherlands, and they hid uh, Jews, and they hid people in their house to get them out of the country so they wouldn't be killed in the concentration camps. And they get discovered, and the Nazis come in, and they take the whole family and put them in a concentration camp. And the two sisters are all alone. Her older sister, Betsy, and Corey. Betsy mentored her sister during these times, and yet she died a horrible death in that concentration camp with no husband, no children, in a horrible fashion after saving so many lives of so many Jewish people. If you were God, let me ask you, what would you have done? If I was God, you know what I would have done? I would have saved that woman. I would have let her marry a godly man and have grandkids to dote on for the rest of her life. That's what I would have done to reward her for her faith. But that's not what God did. Ever see the movie Chariots of Fire? It's kind of an old movie, but it's really good. It's family-friendly, by the way. It got a great message. It's about Eric Liddell, who is a runner. I love the line that he has in that movie. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Isn't that great? He was a great runner, and he went, he went to the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And he would not run his best race because it was on Sunday. And he said, no, i got to go to church. I'm going to give up what I would normally do to go to church. There's a good lesson. It's probably another message for a different sermon. But he entered in another race on Monday, and he, a race he didn't normally run at. And he won that. He won a gold medal. And he became a missionary to China. And he was a godly man and a righteous man. He did nothing but want to help others and share the love of Christ, like his parents who were missionaries as well. He was loved by so many thousands came to see him off when he went on his ship from England to China. Here's the rest of the story. He was taken prisoner by the Japanese in World War II when they came into China. He lived in a three-by-six-foot cell. And just before he was arrested, he got his pregnant wife and child back to, I think, Canada is where he sent them. And they got away. He never saw them again. He became ill and died in that prison camp of a brain tumor, 42 years old. Tell me, how is that fair? How can that be, God? That doesn't make sense, God. Why would you do that, God? Here's a man who stood tall for Jesus, who had everything. He loved Christ more than he loved personal gain. He was devoted to the end. And if you were God, what would you have done? Tell you what I would have done. I would have miraculously saved him by some angel in the night, right? Get him out of that prison cell. And those wicked prison guards, they would have been the ones to get the brain tumors out. I would have done it, right? And you would have done the same thing. So we ask, why did that happen? But that's the way God works. He is sovereign, and he makes decisions that we don't understand. So he gives us some, some, some guidance here about this. He says in verse 16, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? 
He says in verse 7, do not be excessively wicked. Do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? He's talking about extremes in life. He's talking about erring on one side of understanding God and the other. Because we can sometimes do that. We can sometimes fall into the danger of one of those two extremes. We can try so hard in an attempt to force God's hand. We can be so super righteous. Right? Super righteous. If I just do all these things, God will react the way I want him to do. You become arrogant in your righteousness. Remember there was a group of uh, folks that Jesus encountered all the time in the Gospels. What were their names? The super righteous folk. Pharisees, yeah. Who thought that they could control God by their rules and all the things that they did and they were so holy. And I think what Solomon says is don't be so full of yourself that you think you understand God or know better than God. You're so smart and so wise because God really knows, owes us no explanation about why he does the things that he does. You know, that's a good point. We can only know what we know about God through what he decides to tell us. It's called special revelation, by the way, just so you know. Because whatever God wants us to know, we, we, we could not know or would not know about God unless he decides to tell us about himself. You realize that? And it's all right here. Whatever God wants us to know about him is right here. He wants us to change our perspectives to understand that. So don't be excessively righteous. Don't be excessively wicked. Don't be deliberate in your wickedness and turn away from God and say, okay, I don't, I don't get what I want from God, and so I'm going to go do my own thing, God. Try this on for size. There was a pastor at Denton Bible Church in North Texas. He was working late one night, and he heard a crash, and he went out to see what happened. And what he found was a young man, church man, out late one night, got all liquored up and wrecked his car. He wasn't wearing his seatbelt, and the car flipped, and he bounced, and it caught him in his head and decapitated him. Imagine that sight, if you will, for just a moment. A young man who would never be a husband, he'd never be a father, he'd never be a businessman, he'd never count the tides, he'd never see the sunset, he'd never stare into the eyes of his beloved until she flushes. Instead, he was dead at 18, trapped underneath a car with a belly full of beer. Don't be arrogant in your righteousness. Don't be deliberate in your wickedness. He says this, don't think you're smart enough to understand God, but don't give up on God. Don't chuck it all away and live a life of whatever you want to do because that's not the right thing to do either. Here's Solomon's conclusion. It is good, in verse 18, it is good that you grasp one thing. Don't be deliberate in your wickedness. Don't run away from God. And also not let go of the other. Don't be excessively righteous. Don't try and be so smart about God. He says, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Fear God and live a balanced life. Don't get too full of yourself and be the Pharisee because you can't understand God. And don't quit on God, he says. He says, acquire godly wisdom. Don't make wicked and stupid decisions. Here's what he's saying, more simply put, modern English. Obey God in what you know. I think this is on the board. Yeah. Obey God in what you know. All the things that he tells us, obey him in that. Because that's how you show you love Jesus, by the way, is you obey him. And trust him in what you don't. Isn't that easy? Sometimes easier said than done, right? Obey God in what you know, trust him in what you don't. So while we grow in faith, don't become wise in your own estimation. We're never going to be wise enough to criticize or challenge God, no matter how righteous we are without God's grace. As my mama used to say, we haven't got the sense to come in out of the rain. John Newton, who's a former slave trader and author of Amazing Grace, that hymn that we all know and love, 
He said this, when I get to heaven, I will be amazed at three things. He said, I'll be amazed at those I thought would be there who are not. Those that I did not think would be there at all who are. And the fact that I am there at all. You know, it's amazing that when you see the lives of, of, of believers in Scripture, how humble they get as they grow in their faith. It's a good example. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a half of the New Testament. He called himself, in one of his uh, letters, the least of all the apostles. So chronologically, he keeps writing. So I'm the least of all the apostles. And then he goes on in one of his other letters and says, you know what, I'm the least of all Christians. And then finally he said at the end, I'm the chief of sinners. What happened to Paul? You see, you don't ascend into greatness in God's economy. You descend into greatness by giving up and serving and giving up and serving and giving up and serving. That's how you become great in God's economy. You know, when I first got saved, I was a, I was a real Bible study hound. I loved studying God's word. And I went through that period where I was arrogant in my knowledge. Maybe some of you have gone through this. Nancy would say, I'm not sure he's out of that yet. <laughs> you know, I remember getting into arguments with people about what translation of the Bible was best for them. Like, oh my gosh, why would I do that now? But sometimes we do that, right? We start to learn and we start to get so, ooh, I know so much of God's word now. And so what happens is that we need to have a perspective on how our faith is supposed to grow and how we grow in it. And that's what Solomon's going to give us this morning. So, quickly, he's given us three perspectives that need correction over the last few weeks. Prosperity is not always best. Last week, adversity is not always worst. And now we realize that we don't have the last word on knowledge. We don't know everything. He says you need to have that perspective. And here's how you can apply those. I love Solomon because he's going to give you an application. He's going to say exactly what you need to be thinking to live this out. So how to trust God when things don't add up. Here's his first point, verse 19. He says, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers for in a city. He says, get smart about God. Learn godly wisdom and humility by that, uh, for the same thing. Solomon says here that the wisdom of God is better than surrounding yourself with ten of the best men that you can find. You know, there's no greater activity than walking with God and revering him. So it should be our passion. It should be our pastime. How many hours, how many minutes of the week do we give to walking with God and learning his wisdom and becoming humble? You know, there is a wisdom in the world, by the way. Not what we're talking about. The wisdom of God is how to live life and see God and walk with God that's contained in this Bible. Not the wisdom of the world, which appears wise to many. In fact, what is James, the Apostle James, in the first chapter, what is it, or fourth chapter, what does he talk about earthly wisdom? What does he say it is? It's earthly it's natural or sensual, and it's demonic. What are our three biggest problems in the world, Christians? The world, our flesh, and our enemy, the devil. That's the wisdom that's out in the world. So how do we transform our minds? Right here. And that's what Solomon is telling us. Learn the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is first pure, he says in James 4, and a bunch of other things. Search his word. Let him instruct you. It's good to be wise. It's good to let God change you into a righteous man. Stay humble, I think, is what Solomon is giving us. Learn humility. Learn wisdom and humility. 
Because when you start to live it out and you start to see yourself living more righteously and you're starting to put away all those things that you used to do and your life starts to change, Solomon says, make sure you stay downwind of yourself. <laughs> make sure you still smell yourself. How do we do that? We keep Jesus as our standard, not the person next to you. Because you'll never meet that standard here on this earth. So, learn wisdom and humility. Point number two, learn to be gracious. Learn to be gracious. Look at verse 21. For you also have realized that you likewise... Excuse me, verse 21. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Wow. Solomon says this. Don't be amazed. Don't go into some kind of depression when you realize that you still sin. You say things like that. Don't be surprised that not everyone likes you. And don't really surprise that they may have a good reason for not liking you because of your sin. Here's the thing. If you get nothing out of this morning's message except this, don't be so easily offended in this life. Can I get a witness for that? Amen. Don't be so offended. We are so unable to receive criticism. You, know, you realize that? I'm guilty of that. We are so unable to receive criticism. And we're so quick to, re, to go give it, aren't we? Well, I'm just going to tell him the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Yeah, but love doesn't have to hurt so much. Remember that old saying we had when we were kids? Help me out with this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Why do we teach our kids that and then we forget that lesson when we get older? Here's what I'm telling you this morning. Do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. No one has the power to offend you. Did you hear what I just said? No one has the power to offend you. You must let yourself be offended by the words that they bring to your ears. Here's the problem with that. In almost every criticism is what? A little bit of truth. A little bit of truth. Every time someone brings a criticism to us, there's probably a little nugget in there that's real. There's probably a little bit that goes pricks us and goes, oof. So we need to learn to be gracious, is what Solomon is saying. Because we all have a dark side to our personality. We all need to learn how to be less offended or not offended so easily. We all need to learn how to be less critical, striving not to give offense or unloving criticism. We've got to realize we don't know everything about every situation with every person. Let's be a little less critical, striving not to give offense, and then look for that nugget that what's wrong with us. Because you know what? There's probably something in that criticism that's wrong with you. Learn wisdom. And humility. Learn to be gracious. And then he says this in verse 23. I think learn to be dependent on grace. God's grace. Look at verse 23. He says, I tested all this with wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. We must start believing that we are completely dependent on God's grace. Not just for salvation but for righteous living. We don't get saved and then go off and do our own thing. 
The gospel doesn't stop just because you say, said, said some prayer or got baptized. The gospel continues to change and restore your life. You know, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm just being human. No, don't say that. <laughs> being human means you're a sinner. Start relying on God's grace in your life, even if it's for the next five minutes. It's what John Piper calls future grace. Just rely on God's grace for the next five minutes of your life to get you through that. You start doing that, those five-minute intervals, your life's going to change. Solomon says in verse 23 that he tried to be a godly man. I will be wise, but it was far from me. I couldn't do it. He says in verse 24, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? He says, I can't do the things I want to do, and the things I want to do, I can't do. Ever heard anybody else say that? Yeah. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in verse 24 of chapter 7 of Romans. He says, who will set me free from this body of death? Solomon is saying the exact same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 7. Paul, or Solomon is saying, I tried to make a commitment to be a holy man of my own. Couldn't even come close. Could not find righteousness on my own. You know, there's a, a, a theological statement. I won't go to it too, bad, too much today, but there's this, this doctrine of total depravity. You ever heard that? That everything that we do and everything we say in this life is tainted by sin. You've got to realize that about yourself. You know, that's what Solomon is trying to get us, a different perspective about who we are in our own nature, in our own uh, away from God, away from letting the Holy Spirit control us, that we are tainted by sin from birth. There's something wrong with us. Everything I do and everything I think and everything I say on this side of heaven is tainted by sin. And my entire will is oriented against God and I only want what I want, my selfish ways. That's what we've got to realize about ourselves. That's our default position apart from Christ. Now, I'm not trying to be harsh, but I want you to see who we are from God's perspective because I think that's what Solomon is trying to get us to wrap our heads around. Don't be so smart about who you think you are. St. Augustine, who was the uh, bishop of Hippo back in the early days of the church, established much of the theology that the church uh, lives on today, St. Augustine, he said the only reason you think a baby is good is that he hasn't got enough power to show you how evil he is. <laughs> he said if a baby had the strength when he emerged from the mother's womb, he would seize the mother by the throat and demand his milk. And some of you say, no, I had that child. <laughs> that was mine. Look, if you knew what God knows about me in the dark recesses of my heart, you would not have come here to hear this message this morning. And if I knew what God knows about you, I would have asked you to stay home. We're all sinners. Now, you may be surprised that you're evil but it's no revelation to God. Here's the deal. God knows who you are, and he says, but I choose to love you anyway. So let's look at the gospel perspective. Let's look at verse 27. Let's learn the reason why we need grace. Why do we need grace? Why do we need to learn to be gracious? Why do we need to depend on this grace? He says in verse 27, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, 
adding one thing to another to find an explanation. So he's searching, he's saying, in other words. He's searching for something. What is he searching for? Holy living. How to live out this life like Christ wants us to live. What am I looking for, he says? How am I going to find it? He says in verse 28, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all those. He's got us to remember that even though we seek wisdom from God, and even though we strive to be holy, and we want to be righteous and more like Christ, we need to remember that no matter how good we get, there's still going to be some days that we do things that we don't want to do, this side of heaven. And if I understand about myself, then when you come to me and you do something to me, I should understand that it's about you too. And maybe you're just having a bad day. How can I pray for you, brother, sister? How can I show you grace today? Because I think you need it. <laughs> Did you know that under the right circumstances, check this out, under the right circumstances, under the right conditions, under the right environment, there's not any of you in here that would not do the most evil, depraved thing that you can imagine. Did you realize that about yourself? Because you would, apart from Christ. Look at verse 28 again. He says, all of this I'm still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Now, ladies, before you go tear this page out of your Bible... Let me explain to you what he's saying. He's using hyperbole. Right? It's a literary form. It's a, it's a suggestion, uh, to, a, a, a great suggestion to, as an example. Exaggeration to make a point. That's what hyperbole is. Exaggeration to make a point. So what is he saying? He's using hyperbole. He says, basically, I can't find anything good to say about anybody. A thousand people, and there's one guy, but no girls. He's not saying there's nothing wrong with... with with men and there is with he's saying I can't find anybody who walks that way and talks that way on their own. He says it's hyperbole for the fact that we're all a bunch of sinners. And he says in verse 29, behold, I have found only this that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. You see Solomon discovers here in the 7th chapter of Ecclesiastes what Paul wrote about in the 3rd chapter of Romans. He says in verse 23, and Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Solomon's saying. God created man upright, he says. We know that from the story, right? Adam and Eve. Supposed to live together in harmony with God. In the garden forever, working for God. But they blew it, and we blew it. because We would have done the same thing. Because they wanted what they wanted, and not what God wanted. And so they, and now us are separated from this eternal paradise, from the physical place, and we've separated from each other, from God and from each other relationally, and we're separated from God spiritually, and we're totally depraved in our mind and spirit. It's not good news there, is it? But there is good news. And here's the thing. We can't know the mind of God. That's what Solomon says. In the end, you can't know the mind of God. You don't know why he does things. Don't question why he does things. You can petition him all day. He doesn't have to tell you. Sometimes he does. Sometimes it's after the fact when you look back and you go, oh, that's why this happened to me. That's why this person was taken from my life. That's why this happened to me. He doesn't always tell you that when it happens. So you can't know the mind of God, but you've got to trust in this. 
The heart of God is the cross. The heart of God is always to redeem you, always to restore you, always to bring you into a deeper relationship with him. If you get that, then just trust what he's doing. You know, we wouldn't know who God is unless he sent Christ and the Holy Spirit to draw us and convict us and change our hearts. Did you realize that? Without God working in us, we would still be destined for an eternal hell and separated from him. Did you know that? Without Christ's righteousness imputed, that's a big word, isn't it, given to us as if it were our own, without that happening, we'd still be under the wrath of God. It's only on the basis of Christ's death that God forgives us. By his resurrection, we have eternal life, and by his grace, he keeps us that way. Hallelujah. What a Savior. God did not choose us because we decided to make a move toward him because we are so weak and we're so helpless. He did it anyway. 1 John chapter 3, I love this verse. See how great a love the Father has bestowed. He didn't earn it. He gave it to you. Here's the gospel. God did not give us what we deserve. God made men upright, Solomon says, but they sought out many devices. They wanted their own way. And so we deserve hell and death. We deserve that as fallen people. But God bestows on us love and mercy. Oh, how the gospel should free us up. It frees us up to to quit pretending that we're somebody that we're not. The gospel, when we believe in Christ and he changes our hearts, it, it enables us to quit striving, to quit working so hard at becoming something that we can never be on our own. That's the gospel. And I got to tell you, when I fully understood what God had done for me and to me, without having to prove myself, in fact, I was at the lowest point of my life, you know, I broke down and I cried. I said, God, why me? Why did you choose to save me? You know why? You know why? The answer is so simple. He loves me. It's so simple, the gospel. Children can see it. The greatest theological truth known to mankind is contained in a children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know. Sing it with me. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. Let's just stop right there today. Amen? So let's pray together. We're going to have communion here in in just a moment. But before we do, we need to reflect and respond about this message, about God's word and working in our hearts today. How do we live in light of these truths? Bow your heads for me. Let's just pray for just a moment. Seek God. Seek God to know Jesus better and to love him more. Trust God for the forgiveness of our evil every day, every hour, every minute of our lives. The gospel, again, is not a one-time event. The gospel continues to redeem and restore and gives us grace. Even for the next five minutes of our life, God gives us grace. 
Love him, trust him, grow in him. Remember that we are a sinner and we live among sinners and we need God's wisdom. Don't do anything to shoot ourselves in the foot, Solomon would say. We can't control the sovereignty of God in this universe, but we control whether we are critical, whether we're unloving, whether that obnoxious person that nobody likes, we can control that. So I pray God has spoke to you this morning. As we do communion, we remember the death and the resurrection and the coming again of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for us here in just a minute, and, and then uh, Rush and, and the team is going to play for us, and you're going to be able to come up and at your leisure have communion. But don't do it without considering all that you've heard this morning first, and maybe God's speaking to you in your heart before you come up and partake communion. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this message from Solomon. Thank you for the love that continues even though we are who we are. And I pray that if there's any here this morning that have not experienced your love this way, who have not stopped working and striving so hard and have just accepted the the faith that we need, that, that comes from the cross, that comes from grace, that comes from Jesus dying in our place. If we haven't accepted that this morning, Father, speak to their hearts. And for those of us, maybe in Christians, a long time we found ourselves striving so hard and working so hard or maybe chucking it all away because we've given up, I find that we would find that balance today, Lord, to know that you're for us, you're not against us, and you just don't tell us everything, but we can love you and trust you anyway because you are loving and trustworthy. So we pray all these things, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion because we know that when you broke the bread that last night, you told the apostles that this was your body that was broken for them, broken for us. And that when you passed the cup and you blessed it and gave thanks, you reminded them that this was the blood of the new covenant. The, the, your blood is a symbol of your blood that would be shed for people like us. Oh, how we praise you for the blood. How could you love us this way, Lord? How could you love us this way when we were so unlovable? That's the gospel, because you do. And we don't ask for explanations. We just thank you. As we take communion, it's with a grateful heart, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.